welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Chagiga, daf Hey, page five. Um, I said to Yerdena as we were preparing that I would love to read the entirety of this daf. It is much too long for our episode, but there's a lot of rich riches here. Um, and I encourage everybody, if you haven't read through the entirety of the daf yourself and you weren't planning on it, you might want to. There's just a lot of ranging topics here, I would say. So we have here a discussion of, well, I'll tell the story. And it's a nice agarata. So Rabbi Yochanan was walking along the road. He sees a man who is picking figs, and he is doing it apparently in an unusual way. He left the that were already ripe, and he took the ones that were not ripe. Amarlay, so Yochanan says to him, Love honey, Mali isn't aren't the ripe ones better? You know, don't you want the ripe figs? Amarlay, honey la orcha ba'inan lahu, honey natran, vahani lo natran. He said, I need these dates for the road. These dates, I need these figs for the road, right? And he says that they're not yet the because they're not yet ripe, they will last longer. And those that are ripe will not last. So then, you know, then the not rape ones are better. Amar hainu dechtiv hain bekedushav lo yaminu. Lo yamin. He says, Rabbi Yochanan quotes, he takes the quote which is mentioned on the daf above. It's a passage from Eov, uh, the book of Job, chapter 15. And Rabbi Yochanan says, it's from the verse that says, hain bekedushav lo yamin. Behold, he who puts no trust in his sacred ones. Meaning, they're righteous people that God takes from the world before their time. Before their time, in the same way that these figs are before their time. They're ones hat. And it becomes this like parable analogy for you know, it's a it's a com- conversation or a commentary on how people can die before they reach, you know, the their most old age. Let's call it 120 for lack of a better term, right? Um, but it's a what I find interesting here, of course, is that really it's presented as a, this is a story that happened, right? He saw somebody doing this and then he um, extrapolates from it this kind of much larger lesson. And then the Gemara says, Ini, is that true? Meaning, is it so that God takes these takes people before their time because they're right, because he has a need for them is the implication. Vaha hahu talmud talmida dahava b'shivavute so we have a story of a case of a student who lived in the neighborhood or was in the neighborhood of Rav Alexandri, and he died when he was young. And Rav Alexandri said that Rabbi Alexandri says that if this young sage had wanted to, he would have lived. The implication being that what he did with his time, what he did with his lives, he himself brought about his own death, which is, of course, a really difficult uh, difficult statement to say. At least I think so. And and then the Gemara says, but if so, then what Rabbi Yochanan says, and perhaps he was, maybe this student was one of these people whom God plucked, so to speak, you know, early, um, because he puts no trust in his sacred. It's this like, same idea of making, of taking those um, who seem not ready 
before their time, because again, this idea that in the future they won't they won't be at their best. The same way that those ripe figs would not have been at their best, so too perhaps that would be what would have happened with this guy, so that God takes him early, so to speak. The Gemara answers, He was a student who was um who was chutzpedek to his teachers. He was rude or irreverent. Not it, it was improper, and Rev. Alexandre knew about this, and that's what he's really commenting on. He's saying that he himself was not, he's not saying that the improper behavior caused his death, but he's saying that this is, his improper behavior did not, I guess, give him the, I don't know, the, as I say, the, once we start getting into the causation of how God runs the world, I run into trouble, meaning I personally philosophically run into trouble, but the idea here is that that's what Rev. Alexandre is saying. Okay, I want to, there's more of this, right? This, you know, it goes on, Rav Yochanan ben Zakkai talks here, and then Rish Lakish takes it into, takes, goes into a different direction. He starts talking about the convert and judgment and how God, and Rav Yochanan says, um, I'm jumping, I don't know, I'm on Amadav, I'm keeping going on Amadav, but skipping passages. He had kol mishpat, alam. So this, it's a verse from Kohelet that says, God will bring um, every work into judgment concerning every hidden thing. Specifically, the idea that um, God punishes people for things that might have been hidden from a person, right? It, whatever. I I don't really want to get into this, but it boils down to a question of trust, right? The, the second half of this Amud talks about trust. And the question then is raised about how how far are we willing to trust the people that we give that we that we that we need to interact with? So the Gemara says here, and now I'm towards the bottom of the page. The very Rabbi Sheila Amrei Zehanotein Tzedakali Isha Beseiter. There's a one who gives a woman um, a woman charity in private is Dika Maitila Lide Chashada. He's bringing suspicion upon her, right? Meaning, if you're going to say that. You know, you do something on the on the down low, and this idea of giving money to a woman now, it, everybody knows that it's. I mean, the parties know that it's really tzedakah, but so, an onlooker might not really know what's what's happening, and it looks suspect, and it looks reflects poorly on her. Rava Amar ze amishager lishdo besar ve'ino mechutach ba'arvesha batot. So Rava says, this is an example, or this is referring to. The case, because they're both really talking about a biblical verse, and one says it's the case of the charity, and Rava says it's a case of one who sends his meat, his wife, he sends meat to his wife that has not been sliced. What does it mean it's not been sliced? It means that the githa nasha, the sciatic nerve, has not been removed, and it's on Arab Shabbat. And maybe on Arab Shabbat, she'll be in such a hurry to get the food ready for Shabbat, and she will not notice that the githa nasha has not been removed, and then she might actually cook the prohibited meat and serve the githa nasha to the meal. But the Gemara says, but one second, Rava himself would do this. He would send this kind of meat to his wife on Erev Shabbat. And the Gemara answers, Shani bat Ravchista de Kimle begava divkia. The Gemara says, well, the daughter of Ravchista, the daughter of Ravchista is, Rav, is Rava's wife. So that's a, a nice little triangle to keep in mind that Ravchista is Rava's father in law. And this is different because he was certain, he trusted her that she would be an expert in this matter, that she would know that the sciatic nerve is there and that she needs to do the um, to do the removal, you know, before she's going to do any cooking. So 
again, this is a matter of um, interpreting several different biblical verses. But I, but the point I think is how much, I don't know, life lessons, how, how many life lessons, how much commentary on the way we conduct ourselves amongst our, amongst ourselves um, can be kind of gleaned from these cases or from these verses that seem to be talking about something totally else, right? They're much farther afield than these kind of down home examples of how people treat each other. And so in the one case, we've got, um, you know, a comment on what does it mean when people die young? And here we get a comment on, well, how do you handle, uh, you know, whether you should, whether whether you should elaborate the comment that you give to another person, your your explanations. For Rava, he didn't need to explain to his wife because he can trust that she knows, but maybe some other people, you know, in general, as a recommendation, according to this, people should, in fact, either, you know, be more informative when there's something that might lead others to misstep. I think that that's the one point that I have not emphasized enough, and Yudan, I'm about to turn it over to you, but all of this is really in the context of protecting people from error, right? So the daughter of Rav Chista, Rav's wife, he's not worried that she's going to fall into error to begin with, but Rav Alexandre was worried about that that yeshiva bacher, right, who might in fact have ended up in error. And here too, that's the concern, that, you know, if you, will you be in error to see either to eat the sayag nerve, to, to be choshesh for the woman who's going to be, um, to be, who's going to be given charity. Again, all of this is about keeping the, the potential misinformation, or that's not the right word here, uh, to keep it away and make sure that people are um, able to continue on the straight and narrow. So, um, you know, I, I agree with you. This stuff had a lot that was in it. Um, there's something about the stuff that feels very Moed Katani to me, right? Like, I feel like we're still in Moed Katani here. Um, and uh, we haven't exactly gotten into Chagiga, but I don't know. I think there's something about the mitzvah that they're discussing, right? That I keep coming back to of this, you know, it's not so much a ritual. It's like the idea that like you go to be seen by God and God sees you that is allowing them to get into a lot of this very deep theology. Um, oh, and, I like that. That makes sense to me. And so what I want to move on to is uh, a few things on Amud Bet. And again, we sort of divided it this way because there just was so much to talk about. So there's a very interesting passage that starts at the bottom of Amud Aleph. Now, again, remember, we're in the middle of talking about who is obligated to do Re'ia, right? to see and to, to be seen, you know, to see God and to be seen by God. That's how we're going to summarize a little bit what this mitzvah is, right? See and be seen. Um, and so they quote here a pasuk from Devarim, chapter 31, verse 17. And here God basically sort of, uh, sort of describes here, right, that then my anger, God talking about God's anger, shall be kindled against them, against B'nai Israel in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them. And then the rest of that pasuk talks about that they will be destroyed. So this here pasuk is basically describing Hester Panim, right? This idea that sometimes we don't, God's face is not shown to us. Um, and then it goes on to say, Amar Rav Bardla Bar Tavyomi, Amar Rav. So Rav Bardla Bar Tavyomi said in the name of Rav, um, 
And so he says, anyone who's not subject to God's hiding his face, right, who's, you know, whose prayers are answered is not from the Jewish people. Because in other words, what it's sort of saying is, is that being part of the Jewish people is the experience of Hester Punnett. And anybody who's not subject to, and they will be devoured, meaning uh, here we're talking about the non-Jews, is also not part of them. So he's saying something very interesting about sort of the Jewish experience, right, in this world, that we somehow have this experience of Hester Punnett. I think this stress was fascinating to have here because we're in the middle of talking about Re'ia, of being seen, you know, seeing God and being seen by God. And now we're talking about, well, really the experience of Hester Punnett, which I think when we don't have Re'ia anymore, because we don't have the Beit HaMikdash, we basically are in a state of constant Hester Punnett. And so I think this drusha here, sort of the beginning of Chagiga, the fact that they get onto this tangent, it's really not a tangent. It's describing the world as it is now without a Beit HaMikdash, when the possibility of seeing and being seen is just no longer there. And therefore, we're in a state of Hester Punnett. But again, the drusha here is saying something a little bit deeper. It's saying that the experience of Hester Punnett identifies you as part of the Jewish people. I mean, look at this language here, right? Anyone, like I had to read this line a few times. Anyone who's not sort of subject to, right? God's hiding of his face, right? Who's prans, who, right? Is not from the Jewish people. I, 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 that's like a huge theological statement to make. And then the Gemara goes on, Amrile Rabbanan the Rava. So then Rabbanan said to Rava, Marla behester panim ite, below be behave le hol ite. So the sages say to Rava, right, you are not subject to Hester panim. Your prayers seem to be answered. And you're also not subject to being devoured. And then he tries to explain, you know, why that is. I'm not going to read that whole thing, but he tries to explain um, why that is. Um, and then, you know, Rava goes on to give his own interpretation. Uh, of what exactly this means, right? He says, right? I will hide my face in that day. Even God says, even though I turn my face for them, I will speak to them in a dream. And and this is quoting Basuk actually from Bamidbar, chapter 12, verse 6. Um, and Rav Yosef said, God's hand is still always outstressed, sort of like God's still guarding us. And here, Rav Yosef quotes a pasuk from Yeshayahu, chapter 51, verse 16, uh, which says that I've covered you in the shadow of my hand. So I think what we see here in this stuff is really Chazal struggling with the fact that there's no Re'ia anymore, that without the Beit HaMikdash, we actually can't have that uh, supreme encounter where we see God and God sees us. And we're in a state of Hester Panim. And finally, sort of Reva and Rav Yosef come to sort of reassure us, okay, that might be the case, but don't worry. You know, I don't want you to worry about that because God still connects to us either through a dream or God is still sort of, you know, uh, guarding us in some way. Uh, the anthropomorphism of all of this, again, continues to strike me. Um, and, you know, we keep seeing it uh, on this part, you know, in this particular myself. I mean, God is really described in human terms. It's described as a human relationship. God not being able to see or, or God seeing us or sorry, that's really what it is. It's God not, you know, God seeing us with a nap, uh, God's face being turned from us. I mean, this is not the way that God has been described, really, I think, as much in previous Masachot. And again, I think it's related to the fact 
that we, the mitzvah of Re'iyah itself, sort of can see, you know, thinks of God in a very anthropomorphic way? Um, I think that it's helpful to us, right? That why do we ever have anthropomorphism, right? It's, it's not really about God for God's sake. It's for the way we need to relate. And, and sometimes that concrete language is, is helpful, right? To be able to imagine we're in the presence, whatever that presence word, right, actually means, but to be seen is, is the thing that we're supposed to internalize here, I think. And so then from there to all these other discussions, I feel like, Okay, we're we're in a zone that needs a different kind of vocabulary, perhaps, than other mitzvot that we've talked about. Right, and I think then the Gemara. This was a you know piece I also wanted to mention. If you read the rest of the Dap, then there's a whole discussion. I'm just not going to read it all. It's pretty lengthy for the sake of time. But about God weeping, what does God cry over? So remember, we just came off a page where you know starting on Amud Dalit and going on to Amud, uh, sorry Daf Dalit and going on to Daf Hay where we talk about all these different psukim that make Chazal cry because they reflect a fundamental shift in our relationship with God. And then on this stuff, we talk about, well, God's also crying. What does God cry over, right? God cries over the destruction of the Beit HaMidash. God cries over people who should be learning Torah but are not learning Torah. And so I agree with you, Anne. It's, it's, this stuff is trying to say something very deep theologically. And, and I think the weeping piece is to say, we, you know, yes, we are in a place of pain. We're sitting in a place of Hester Punim, but Chazal in a way is trying to comfort us. God is also in pain. Like everybody's in pain. Nobody thinks this relationship is what it should be right now because we don't have Ria. But again, even describing God as crying, right, is, is anthropomorphic, that God somehow has emotion, that God somehow weeps the same way that we do. Um, but I think it's a, a way of trying to make sense of a state of being that doesn't really make sense and we know doesn't describe the ideal relationship. And it's Chazal sort of grappling with that and really coming to terms with that. Remember, they're writing this, you know, the first exile only lasted 70 years and that, that was promised. They're writing hundreds of years after the destruction of the second temple. And I think they know, and history proved itself, this wasn't ending anytime soon. Um, and that's a very, very dark place to be in, right? Like that you know that a relationship is not going to be improved. And so I think it's fitting, therefore, they do talk about God, you, you know, in this way of sort of experience the same emotions that we do of grief, uh, of not connecting, because that's really what their experience was with their with their relationship with God. Um, and just before we close out the episode, I just want to mention one thing. There's this famous Gemara here about Rav and Rav Kahana, uh, which we actually saw in Brachot also on uh, page 62a. Uh, where Kahana, Rav Kahana actually goes under Rav's bed while he's having relations with his wife. Um, the difference here in the text, I just want to point out, is in the one in Brachot, uh, when Rav yells at Rav Kahana, Rav Kahana basically answers and says, well, this is also Torah and I need to learn it. We don't see that line here in Chagiga. But just to point out, you know, that this is a parallel text, it's interesting that it um, appears twice. Um, I think it's trying to teach us something that's sort of uh, you know, all things need to be taught from by teachers to students, which is a whole other philosophical thing. Um, and we spoke more about it on, on the podcast on Brachot, uh, page uh, DAF 62. So go back there if you want to listen to that. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend and Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn. 